Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Johnny C. Taylor Jr. is the president and chief executive officer of SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management. With over 300,000 members in 165 countries, SHRM is the largest HR professional association in the world, impacting the lives of 115 million workers every day. As a global leader on the future of employment, culture, and leadership, Johnny is a sought-after voice on all matters affecting work, workers, and the workplace. He is frequently asked to testify before Congress on critical workforce issues and authors the weekly USA Today column, Ask HR. Johnny's career spans over 20 years as a lawyer, human resource executive, and CEO in both the not-for-profit and for-profit space. He has held senior and chief executive roles at IAC Interactive Corp., Viacom's Paramount Pictures, Blockbuster Entertainment Group, the McGuire Woods Law Firm, and Compass Group USA. He was appointed chairman of the President's Advisory Board on Historically Black Colleges and Universities and served as a member of the White House American Workforce Policy Advisory Board during the Trump administration. In this podcast, he reveals some fascinating counterintuitive insights about Generation Z. Hint, they actually care a lot about money. Breaks down the macro policy structural barriers that are going to have to be removed if organizations are going to create workplaces that will work in the future. And gives us a practical first step CEOs, strategists, and leaders can take to begin resetting their cultures. Note that all of his projections are fact-based. They're not conjecture. They're built on a large database of employment data Sherm has been collecting for decades. So it's worth listening carefully. Ladies and gentlemen, Johnny Taylor. Johnny, thank you so much for spending time with us here. We're going to talk about your work and all the different aspects of it, but so people can get to know you personally, I'd love for you to finish this sentence for me. If you really know me, you know that. The most important thing in the world to me is my daughter, period. Not parents, not wife, not it, it is, period, that 11-year-old daughter. 11-year-old daughter, that's awesome. We're going to talk about strategy, and certainly HR in organization is central to strategy. I think increasingly, it is the pillar of strategy. So just talk to us about strategy. When you think of strategy, how do you define it, or how do you think of it? So it's one of those words that really, it eludes all of us, right? There's always the textbook definition, so your audience doesn't need to know. But I define it in terms of what is the tactical nature of things, how stuff actually gets done and the way it actually happens, the operationalization of it. Strategy is the mental exercise that one has to do to establish a framework for the how. That may not be particularly artful, but the idea is before you get into the do, the activity of executing, it's how are we going to conceptually frame up what we're trying to achieve or whatever the business goal is, or in some levels, it's not just a business goal, it's a people goal. Mm -hmm. So this is a bit of a leading question. I know that you're also an attorney. 
It does seem to me that in the past, strategy was kind of in a boardroom with the board, develop our three-year plan, and then cascade it down with a bunch of KPIs and instructions that people comply with. It does seem like it is shifting to strategy being made spontaneously, spread out. Is that true? And what's causing that? Well, so just wrote a book. It's called Reset, and it's a leader's guide to managing through an age of upheaval. We have finally come to grips with the fact that over time, and I'm talking 50, 70, 100 years, we saw paradigm shifts every, oh, five to seven years. And it's why typically a strategic plan was a five-year plan or sometimes a three-year plan. What we now know is that the shifts are occurring so quickly and that the business environment is so dynamic that what you thought was going to be the case even 12 months from now has literally changed until the need for strategy to be just constantly underway and you're constantly refining it. You may have a direction, generally speaking, but the strategy has to be as nimble as the environment in which we work. And it's just incredibly different now. And it's made even worse by things that are beyond all of our control, i.e. what we're living through now, which is a pandemic. Even then, the people who had the best strategic plans for how to deal with a catastrophic, what we used to say, unprecedented force majeure moment, you know, never anticipated that 15 months later, we'd be saying we're still in the middle of a pandemic, (laughs) right? So whatever strategic plan you had is out the door and you've got to pivot. And we see it in the HR side in particular, where it was, we're going to get people back to work. So we have a long-term plan and a strategy for getting people back to work and getting people back to school. And then Delta shows up. And I heard just yesterday, there's a mu and there's a Lambda. And so your best efforts to come up with a strategy that is going to be static, it's a waste of time. So then what does a strategist or a CEO need to be thinking about then? I'm thinking, for example, there is talent. How do I identify the strategists in my organization? There is organization itself. And how do we enable people to collaborate? I know in your book, you lay out a whole number of things, but what would you say is the top one or two shifts that a strategist or CEO needs to make? Number one, we have five generations in the workplace for the first time ever, I might add, but we have another dynamic in play that really complicates it all. Generation Z is very, very different than millennials and than any prior generation. Fundamentally, they are truly digital natives. You know, we say millennials are, but millennials are 40 years old this year. The first millennial was born in 1981. So they're 40. They're not children anymore. And so they straddled. They saw technology come in, but they weren't necessarily born with it, right? This generation now, literally the way they consume, the way they work, and therefore the way they think is so different than anything we can predict until the strategies that we employ, it's unprecedented to use a word. It really is. We just don't really understand how they will live and work and play. So that is number one. And every generation has an older generation and a newer generation, but this is at a level that we've never seen because of the technology and just their lived experience. Also add that this is a generation that lived through a pandemic. 
None of us, none of us, even, you know, my octogenarian grandmother didn't live through a pandemic, right? These people have. So they are going to be very different. So that will inform strategy. Even their banking habits, their eating habits, everything is different. That's number one. The other thing, though, is, and I think it's important from a labor standpoint, Americans had fewer and fewer children. So starting in the year 2000, the American birth rate has been on a steady decline. We are an old country relative to India and the African continent. And so here we are, as you no doubt have read, 10.1 million job vacancies in this country right now. And last year during the pandemic, the birth rate that's been on a decline for two decades dropped an additional 4%. Americans just had fewer children in the middle of the pandemic. So what does all of that mean? It means whatever your strategies for were for getting your work done, i.e. talent, who and what number of consumers you will have, all of that has been literally impacted by a total sea shift in population growth in the U.S. in particular. How would you characterize how Gen Z is different in the way they think about work or what they want or how they work? Or is it that we just don't know yet? Here's some of the things we know now about them. They are very, very much focused on money. So we have learned this, and it's contrary to everything you're going to read. It's the dirty little secret, but I'm going to tell you. This was a generation that saw two things. They saw their siblings weighed down with student loan debt. Even if they finished college and got a job, they were still struggling. Thus was born the gig economy. Their siblings held jobs, but also had to have a part-time gig to service their debt. So they are keenly aware of what it means to consume education and you know how to consume everything. We've seen this generation put off building houses and buying houses because they simply could not afford to do it. So the generation that's following them has learned. They've watched parents and older siblings and cousins, and they've really informed money matters. That's number one. Number two, and this has been the biggest aha from our research. Now, by the way, let me go back to number one. They're not suggesting that other things don't matter. Purpose, and they want to be fulfilled, and they want to be aligned. And so you're saying diversity, equity, inclusion, all of that stuff. But for the first time in a long time, money has topped the list. The last time money really topped the list of what's important to the incoming generation was when the millennials who had just come out of watching their parents just struggled through the 2008 economic disaster. That informed who they were. Well, this group absolutely is thinking very differently about money. And so we've seen recently wage inflation through the roof. They're leaving companies and jobs that they love, but they're like, listen, this will pay me more money. And one day they'll fire me. So I better save some of this money. And this is just the way it is. Either they'll fire me because I'm not doing a good enough job or because automation. Remember, because they're technologically so savvy, they understand robots, AI, machine learning, and they know what that means for them potentially over time. The other thing that is really critical about this generation is they understand the concept of lifelong learning in ways that none of us could. My parents and everyone, they still were of the generation where you go work for 20, 30 years and you get the gold watch and you know that's the way it works. My generation said, maybe not 2030, but you don't want someone to look at your resume and see you as a hopper, right? You know, someone who can't keep a job. This generation doesn't care. The notion of looking at a resume and someone's had five different jobs in seven years doesn't phase them. 
In fact, they query why you would stay anywhere for more than three years. So their relationship with the employer, what we call the employer-employee contract, that social contract, is literally very different for them. And that, from a strategy standpoint, especially a labor strategy standpoint, people strategy, is something we've never seen before. These people are quitting jobs without a job. They're ghosting. I'll accept your job and then not show up on the first day and never call you again and won't take your calls. So it's just a very, very different dynamic. That seems to mean that the definition of what a worker is, what the work week is, what the workplace is, is evolving. So what can CEOs, boards, strategists do to rethink those things? So HR has typically been seen, this is a really important issue for me. We've been seen as the people who like react to things from a policy perspective once they come down. CEOs and the smart strategists are going to take their HR departments and say, we want you to get in the front of this, especially in a knowledge-based economy where we win and lose depending upon how we attract and retain the best talent. What does that mean? Workplace policies were really based out of a 1938 piece of legislation called the Fair Labor Standards Act. So it's old. It's over 80 years old. And we have not made any meaningful change to it. So you're right. Can you just explain the Fair Labor Standards Act for us? Yes. So there's this piece of legislation called the FLSA, and the acronym stands for the Fair Labor Standards Act. It was the major piece of legislation from the federal government that said, what is work? Who is an employee? When do you pay overtime for said employee, et cetera? So literally the terms and conditions, the strategic framework of the employer-employee relationship are dictated by this federal legislation. It has been modified slightly incrementally over the years, but not enough to keep up with the change. And how does that play out? What is an employee? Well, does that person work 40 hours a week? Do they work 35 hours a week? Do they work eight hours a day versus 10 hours a day? Do they get overtime after 40 hours in a work week? Or is the concept of overtime totally dated? Because this was a piece of legislation that contemplated that you go to work and you leave. It didn't catch up. It didn't keep up with the creation of the beeper which meant now you work after hours. And now the cell phone that literally is your mini computer that's with you at all times, hell, no one is off. All of us are technically violating the Fair Labor Standards Act because you cannot accurately capture the amount of work people do after traditional work hours. We just literally are revisiting. And I tell you, the pandemic shone light on one other really dated and antiquated part of it. Guess what? We provided unemployment benefits to people who were never employed for the first time. During the pandemic, we offered gig workers, the Uber driver who didn't have any Ubering to do, we gave them and allowed them to file for unemployment insurance. How can you provide unemployment insurance to people who were never employees? That's how dated the entire framework from a policy perspective is. And so that's what I would say. Long answer to say, CEOs, other business leaders are going to have to work with their HR executives to say, we need to go to Washington, go to state capitals and influence the new work policy framework. Got it. Those are the macro forces that have to be untangled. There isn't a structure that corporations can look at to align to. I want to bring it then down and shift gears a little bit and look at culture. In your book, you talk about resetting culture. How can a strategist or CEO determine if their company's culture needs a reset? I'm going to say something pretty bold. Every company needs a reset of its culture after the pandemic in particular. It changed everything. 
and it's not hyperbole, it changed everything. And so whatever one's culture was pre-pandemic, it is worth a diagnostic look under the hood to ensure that all of the assumptions that we made 15 months ago still hold. We know that we're in the middle of the great resignation, the turnover tsunami. And that means whatever, even the best run companies are now seeing 20, 30% annual turnover. And they are all perplexed. They're like, wait a minute, we have this perfect culture. Well, it may have been before March of 2020, but everything changed. And it's not an indication of your failure. It is literally the ground beneath you moved. And so what we're saying is practically speaking, CEOs and other leaders have to go in and now do their own temperature check. Are our policies still relevant? Something as simple as, do we work in the office five days a week? That was a total norm in March of last year. And now it's not. So is it four days? Is it three days? Are we a hybrid work environment? Or are we an environment that says, you know what? Our culture is so unique. We collaborate in person. If you don't come to work, you don't work here. None of those are right or wrong. This is not a test where you can be right or wrong, but you do have to revisit and say, in a post-pandemic world, does that still work? I've got a ton of other questions, but I know we're coming up at the top of our time with you. So what's something practical that a CEO or board or strategist can do? Say they do that diagnostic and realize how their culture needs to shift. There's so many frameworks on culture. There's all these like soft factors and success rates of culture changes are less than 100%. So what's your go-to first step or driver when we're shifting a culture? We are going to have to sit down, and this is going to be very practical, and I had to do it here at Sherm and almost in every job that I've been. You've got to sit down because it starts at the top, CEO and the CXO suite and say, not what do we aspire to do from a cultural standpoint, but who are we going to be? Like, this is it. And some of it's not pretty. You have to make some real tough decisions because in doing so, you literally are going to weed some people, some eminently qualified from a technical perspective people out of your applicant pool because you're going to be honest about who you are. One of the problems that we've done historically is we court in the talent acquisition process, the recruitment process. And we're not brutally honest about who we are, what we value, what we don't. And what most organizations do is they spend time talking about who they want to be perceived as, right? And what do I want Glassdoor to say about me? And so that's how they come up with their cultural strategy. And it fails. I have a shorthand definition of what culture is, and it's how things really work around here, how things get done, not how they should or how you want them to. So number one and just practical thing I would say to anyone listening is you've got to sit down and you've got to engage in introspection as a senior management team. And you've got to be able to say, here are things about us that are great. Here are things about us that are not so great, but this is who we are. This is so important because everybody that's listening here is probably an employee or is going to be or was, and your work touches all humans. So I really want to thank you for being here. I highly encourage people to read your new book. How else can people connect with you or follow you or learn from you as you continue this mission is what I hear that you are pursuing? You can see me, of course, I'm all over social media and I'm on LinkedIn. You can find us at charm.org is our handle. I'm on Twitter. I'm in all of the places that you'd expect. But what I would encourage people to do is go check out our website, charm.org. It's not just for HR professionals. All of us are either HR professionals or we're people managers. And many of us are both. And so if you are a people manager, a strategist, and all of us have a strategic role in our work, we can help you better understand people. 
and people are changing and evolving every day. So shrm.org. Lovely. Thank you so much, Johnny, for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.